0: Welcome to episode 17 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine.
1: I'm Anna Reeser, co founder and co editor in chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s.
2: And I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor in chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet, and I am currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at SmithsonianMag.com.
0: And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, so before we get into the episode, uh, I wanted to give everyone a heads up for the next special series that we're going to be running on the website next month. To coincide with the Supreme Court oral arguments, we'll be exploring the relationship between the courts, gender, and health care with a new piece each week in the month of April. So be sure that you check it out on the website or um, follow us on social media so that you don't miss it. And I also want to thank everyone who's been tweeting about the show. Um, we don't pay to advertise the show, so we greatly appreciate you all spreading the word. Um... And don't forget to leave us your rating or review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts um, so that more people can
0: find us. So, thanks. Hey, Okay, well, let's get started on today. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know why, but that was weird. I don't know, because things. Um, yeah. Anyway uh do you guys remember um a while ago uh when there was the hashtag thanks for typing that was going around twitter um so that would have been like early it's like early 2017 i had to go look it up because i couldn't even remember when it was um but there was definitely a good chunk of time when everyone on kind of academic and feminist twitter was talking about it because it has been a couple of years a couple of long years uh here is the recap um Bruce Halzinger, who is a professor of English at the University of Virginia, um, started having a conversation um, with his colleagues on Twitter about something that uh, at first sounds kind of boring. Um, So academic pages, uh, academic um, bleh. something, uh, he started talking on Twitter about something that at first sounds pretty boring, acknowledgement pages of scholarly books. Uh, But the interesting thing was that he began to point out that buried among references to publishers and mentors and advisors, there would be a line that would go something like, I want to thank my wife for typing up my manuscript. And he would see this over and over again. And according to the acknowledgments, uh, the wives, they weren't just typing. They were also editing the manuscript or proofreading it, um, acting as research assistants. And there were even times when it would say something like, thank you for taking care of my children and doing the housework. Uh, So like acknowledging that as well in this really weird way. Thank you for making sure I don't live in a hovel while I'm
2: doing the work of genius. Right, right.
1: (laughs) Uh, So one of these acknowledgments said, uh, quote, my wife transcribed the first draft of the manuscript working from the black letter type, 16th century spelling and wondrous punctuation of the original publications <laughs> end quote. Uh, so <laughs> uh, today we you can decipher historical punctuation and type and handwriting uh, it's, uh, paleography. Um, that's because that's a specialized field that people <laughs> of study that people do. It's not just a thing that like, Wives do. Uh yikes. Uh, so in the most of the examples in the hashtag thanks for typing, I think we're authors and literary scholars from the twentieth century. Um but this is a phenomenon very familiar <laughs> to those of us who study women in the history of science. Yes? <laughs> yep. Um so today uh not today, <laughs> sorry much of what we do.
2: (laughs) This has been, thanks for for listening to the show, everybody. That'll do it for us. (laughs) That'll do it for the podcast forever. It's over.
1: (laughs) We had a good run. (laughs) Oh, God. So a lot of what we do at Lady Science involves sort of peeling back the layers of who's actually doing scientific work, who's getting credit, why some people are doing work that's that's remembered by the sort of popular imagination, others get pushed to the edges. So in fact, the dedication of our very first lady science anthology from approximately uh, 1,000 years ago, (laughs) uh, uh, we tried to highlight this. And so uh, the dedication was, we dedicate this volume to all the astronauts, computers, helpers, typing girls, lady doctors, and housewives. And there's people that are sort of, you know, in the background or in the acknowledgments or the footnotes or whatever.
2: And you see this uh, type of discussion um, with people like uh, Cecilia Payne and Annie Jump Cannon and other women computers who worked at the Harvard College Observatory in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, And you also see this in uh, more recent stories highlighted by the famous book and movie Hidden Figures with the stories of Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughan, and Mary Jackson. Um, But if you go back even further, um, you can start to see it when you look at the life and work of wives and sisters and mothers and daughters of several prominent scientists. Um, Some of these women had formal academic training of their own, and some of them didn't. All of them, like the women in the hashtag, thanks for typing, did their work in concert with a male relative who got most, or in a lot of cases, (laughs) all of the credit for their joint accomplishments. Um, So today we're going to learn about some of these women and why they matter so much.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the first story that we are going to talk about, which is I think the Yeah, I think it's the earliest example um, that we have here. Uh, It's kind of one of my favorite women from the history of science. uh, And that is Marie Anne Lavoisier, who is also um, often is called uh, Madame Lavoisier. And I have to give credit to Alexis Pedrick, who is my friend and colleague at the Science History Institute, um, for teaching me everything I know about Madame Lavoisier and why she was pretty badass. Um, the Institute recently did a podcast that goes even more deeply into her story. Um, so we, we leave, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes and you can learn even more about, uh, the way that she both, um, worked with her first husband and kind of hated her second husband, but that's another story. Um, so Marie-Anne <laughs> was born in 1758, uh, to a family of aristocrats in France, um, when she was 13 years old, she married her father's protege, Antoine Lavoisier, which is gross. All kinds of gross. Um, <laughs> but they actually, like, I guess they had a positive relationship. You've, I don't know. It's weird, but the 7, 18th century was weird. Um, today, Antoine Lavoisier is... Sometimes called the father of modern chemistry. I feel like he's one of like 10 people who are called the father of modern chemistry, but whatever. (laughs) Um, Among other things, he discovered the role that oxygen played in combustion and uh, some basic principles for uh, uh, a number of different elements. Um, And... The interesting thing, though, is that Marie Anne was really his collaborator every step of the way. Um, she worked in his lab and uh, wrote down and interpreted the results of a lot of his exper- experiments, and she did uh, tr- a lot of translating of his work. Uh, she was also a really wonderful artist, and she made uh, drawings of his lab as well. And uh, like Antoine Lavoisier is amazingly well documented. Um, even for someone of his, like, status. Um, but a lot of the reason that he's so well-documented is because Marianne uh, documented all of his work. And um, um, one thing that is nice about the Lavoisier story is that it is relatively common um, among people who know about Antoine Lavoisier to um, talk about uh, his wife as well. Uh, just, I feel like because her fingerprints are all over so much of his stuff, um, another great like way that you see that is, uh, if you've ever seen a painting of the two of them, it is a painting of him sitting at a desk, um, and looking over his shoulder at her and she's standing behind him. I think she has an amazing wig, uh, and she is like front and center in this painting, and this is really a painting of her that he happens to be in. And, like, based on his expression and uh, posture, you kind of feel like he even knows that, which is what's so great about it. Um, so, so this is an example where she's at least getting a little bit more of the um, the air around his work, I think, than some of the women we're going to talk about. All of that said, no one has ever written a biography of her, which is kind of insane. And someone should get on that.
1: that i actually didn't know i thought for sure that uh i think like it's a good uh it's a good first story to talk about in the context of thank you for typing because um it's amazing even well into the 20th century how um men who are doing big thinking uh just cannot be bothered to write things down (laughs) it's true and that like writing down the results of your experiments or like in the period I study, I don't know, learning how to use a typewriter and writing memos for your job is just like completely beneath (laughs) men. Like it's just way too menial for their genius brains.
2: Yeah. Well, Uh, one of the things that in the other women that we're going to talk about too is, you know, when you first study history of science or you study these like standout male figures like Einstein for example, we're going to talk about his wife. Um, and he, they seem to have like these bursts of time in their life where they're like just creating work constantly. And I always wondered, you know, I always just thought that, they, that there was some element of genius because that's not how normal people are able to, to produce work. Same thing with someone like Darwin. And the reason now that I have learned more about this stuff and the role that of what, you know, the women in their lives did is that they did everything else that allowed them to do that. Yeah. To devote days and days and months and years to just working because they had all of these people around them that were doing everything else no, of course I'm never going to reach that level of output because I don't have someone literally feeding me while I'm typing. Yeah. You know, like that was almost kind of like a um, a turning point for me when I was studying history of science. And it, that was really the first thing that busted genius myths for me.
1: The other, the other good genius buster was... I believe it was Darwin who kept good records of, like, his actual work habits, but it just involved, like, getting up at, like, 1130 in the morning <laughs> and, like, eating some toast and then thinking for a few hours and then never really taking, you know, direct care of his children. Right. Uh, right. A <laughs> lot of sleep, a lot of sleeping these geniuses did, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds nice. You can imagine their wives getting up at, like, 430 in the morning. Right. Uh <laughs> okay so we're uh yeah the next story it is it Milepa?
0: i think so? that sounds right to me okay.
1: <laughs> i'm so bad about the pronoun i've been this is one of those things like i get slapped on the wrist for mispronouncing things that i've only ever read and never heard spoken out loud yes, i do that all the time, mostly jab. people's names so uh let's talk about einstein speaking of geniuses um I guess. Uh, Mileva Einstein was the wife of Albert Einstein, who, who, with whom you may be familiar. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. And we're, I'm not going to talk any really more about him. Uh, uh, but Mileva was born in Serbia in 1875. She met Albert when she was admitted to the Polytechnic Institute in Zurich in 1876. And we know from there... Letters together that Albert wasn't a great student. He sort of rarely attended lectures, and it was actually Maleva who helped him stay organized in his studies. Um, and by the time they left the institute, they were on equal footing, sort of grades wise, and Maleva even received a higher mark in applied physics of five to his one, <laughs> um, which is, I think, a considerable difference, of course, <laughs> of the pair. Uh, only Albert was granted a degree. Uh, and so after, they continued working together, and they even published a paper um, that was given only his name, not hers. Um, according to a 2015 biography of the labor written by Red Miller, Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> of, oh, God. Millen? Millen?
0: We'll put it in the show
2: notes. Yeah, not
1: just save the biography and we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> oh, God. I'm so sorry. They continued their work together, and they even published a paper that was given of only his name, not hers, of course. And according to a 2015 biography, they came to... This decision to only have his credit be on it, because they believed that a paper that included a woman's name would receive less recognition. And you know they were probably
2: yeah <laughs> they were exactly, probably right yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, so after they were married, in addition to working together, Malévá took on the roles of wife and mother. And uh, in 1905, which is the year that Albert published um, his work on special relativity, this sort of like. Very important year in his uh, life and legacy. Maleva was the one who checked his work when he uh, clocked out and went to bed.
2: So again, the lots of sleeping, <laughs>
1: lots of sleeping. <laughs> yeah, we already have this image of geniuses like uh, being up at all hours, but uh, not not historically. <laughs> they tended to get there eight or fourteen hours or whatever. <laughs> So, as Albert gained more fame, the marriage began to buckle under that stress, and it eventually ended in divorce. And so, when agreeing to the divorce, Muleva said that if Albert ever received a Nobel Prize, she was to receive that money, and she did. Uh, But in 1925, Albert wrote in his will that the prize money was intended for his sons. (laughs) Man, what a prick. (laughs) Maleva objected uh, and said that she uh, would then claim her contributions to his work, like she would go public. Uh, And in response, Albert wrote her, um, and I think it's worth reading the passage in full to kind of understand how Maleva and women to a larger extent were kept quiet uh, in these situations. So um, he wrote to her, quote, You made me laugh when you started threatening me with your recollections. Have you ever considered, even just for a second, that nobody would ever pay attention to your saying if the man you talked about had not accomplished something important? When someone is completely insignificant, there is nothing else to say to this person but to remain modest and silent. This is what I advise you to do. I got a little choked up uh, reading that. So, yeah, for uh, – there's not really – I don't have anything else to say about that uh, for a fuller account of this story. And to read more of Malaman, uh Albert's letters, you can check out um, Pauline Yagnon's piece in, the scientific, in Scientific American. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But, uh, you know, that's a doozy.
2: It's <laughs> just – and uh, the thing is, like, it's true. Like, what he said is cruel – And, but it's also true. Yeah. And we know it's true because we're just now learning about her. Yeah. Like history proved him to be right about people not listening to a woman or not believing that she would
0: have something to do with what he did. Like you can, you can imagine sort of the, the good faith it took to like publish that first paper with him. And also just like the rationale, um, thought processes of, of, okay, it's just worth it to get the work out there. And, you know, we have a great relationship, so this is never going to come back and, like, bite me in the butt. Uh, in part just because, like, what other choice did she have but to tell herself that? And then to have that, like, fall apart and him to throw it in her face in this way is just, just, yeah, the cruelty and he knew... Was that was true, like that he was stating truth, but he wasn't going to help her out of the situation. Um, Just he was going to make it harder because he could. It's just so devastating.
2: Well, and there's the the first part, the first sentence of that letter, you made me laugh when you started threatening Mm -hmm. me with your recollections. I think saying recollections has a sort of patronizing dismissive diminishing it's like it's like gaslighting yeah Yeah. what
1: you think you remember yeah you need to you know keep quiet about yeah
2: we know the extent to which that type of rhetoric and thinking goes like well, who's going to believe you? Right. Who's going to believe you that I hit you? Who's going to believe you that I did these things to you? Yeah. And that's what keeps women quiet about a whole range of violences and oppressions that are done to them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, It's such a rough one. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this one's also pretty rough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so unlike Lavoisier and Einstein, Carolyn Herschel... Um, did receive quite a bit of notoriety in her day. Um, for her discovery of several nebulae and comets, such as the herschel Rigolet comet, that's probably wrong. Uh, <laughs> she was the first woman to be awarded a gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1828. And she was also named an honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy in 1935. And on her 96th birthday... She lived a long time. <laughs> In 1846, the King of Prussia gave her the gold medal for science. Um, and she was, without a doubt, an accomplished astronomer. Um, but her name is also forever tied to that of her brother, William Herschel. Um, throughout her life and career, she supported William, and she took care of him, <laughs> and even feeding him and reading to him while he worked. Um She cleaned and polished and mounted his telescopes, for which he was and still is so famous for. Um, And she also recorded and organized William's astronomical findings. Um, But for Herschel, I think that this goes to show how um, pervasive the role of woman is, that even, you know, this... The role of sister and helper and assistant seemed to eclipse her own accomplishments um, and even her own identity uh, as an astronomer in her own right. And when she was 96, the same year that the king of Prussia honored her, um, she wrote, I am nothing. I have done nothing at all. All I am, all I know, I owe to my brother. I am the tool which he has shaped to his use.
0: Uh. It's so sad. It is. <laughs> it is. She accomplished so much, but like the conception of her doing that in her own right, there were so few models for that kind of thing that you can imagine that like the mo- that was the only model she saw her for herself uh, was was to be someone who helped her brother.
2: And it's like these um, these like societal gender roles: sister, wife, whatever. I think um, for women, these roles are also very caught up in identity yeah. and self identity and self realization in a way that is not the same for men. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because men get to be fathers, but it obviously does not like dictate the uh, scope of their lives the way it does for women i Caroline's story has always been, I think, especially upsetting to think about just because like we said, these like this like totalizing role of a sister or a wife or something, like it shapes your perception of everything that you do. Mm-hmm. So it was not Possible for Caroline to see herself that way. Yeah. Like you said, there was no model for that. There's no model for a woman, astronomer, for her to like form her identity around. Yeah. Uh, the only model she had was sister, assistant. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing, like, that I think is interesting about um, Caroline and some of these other women is um, you talked about how she organized his data. And, like, that kind of labor, like, typing, like, uh, you know, doing calculations has been categorized as, like, feminized um, menial labor. But I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, You can't do astronomy without, like, a well-organized data set. Otherwise, you're just looking at a bunch of nonsense that you wrote down. Like, that's an essential part of the step. And, like, we were so quick to say that uh, that William Herschel was this, like, genius astronomer, but he couldn't even organize his own data. <laughs> and if she hadn't done it for him, how would he be able to draw the conclusions that he did? He couldn't yeah. uh, no, or- feed himself. Yeah. yeah. Who organized Who organized her data yeah. that she used to, like, verify her discoveries? She did it herself. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah there's there's this idea that like yeah men men have great ideas and women do the boring stuff that makes like the great ideas concrete and usable in some fashion
1: and yeah Yeah, and it's this like it's tied in again to these like um like caring roles these like gendered roles of like sister or wife or helper that like all these sort of like the more menial or material details of both of science and of daily life of preparing food for yourself and putting it in your face <laughs> is something that, you know, men don't have to be bothered with right. because they can generally expect to have a wife or a sister or a mother to take care of them and to take care of those sort of material needs.
0: Uh, so for – um Another example of, of this sort of thing, uh, the three women we've talked about so far um, were related to some of the most famous men in the history of science. Um, and uh, they're relatively well-known um, themselves. But we do want to wrap up by mentioning um, a lesser-known woman um, that maybe in some ways the things that she was doing kind of exemplify um, that sort of hashtag thanks for typing. Uh, Thing of just kind of doing all of this background work that like ensures that science and like academic work happens uh so uh elizabeth campbell was the wife of william campbell who in the early 20th century was in charge of the lick observatory outside of san jose california uh, so at the time, Northern California was pretty isolated. Like, this is California is still the Old West, basically. Uh, and so it's pretty isolated. But there's a um, really a community of uh, astronomers and scientists who live out there and their families. Um, and so both Elizabeth and the wives of the other astronomers were played a pretty significant role in building the social and cultural life for the observatory and the surrounding community. They were the ones, like, making stuff happen just, like, around them, uh, both in terms of socializing, but also in terms of, like, making sure stuff got clean and food. There was food and uh, they had communication with, like, the larger cities nearby and uh, and a lot of the women were also pretty uh, well-educated themselves, and so they were doing a, a lot of kind of the computer work, um, too, I think the article I read about this said. Um, but along with being significant um, an ex- a significant observatory, uh, the Lick sponsored eclipse expeditions around the world. Um, and this is where, like, Elizabeth Campbell really seems to come into, like, Her own and like the work that she did um, because she was in charge of managing the expeditions Um, and they went literally like they went to Australia and they went to South America and they went all over Europe and she was the one that made sure that all the travel was planned for a large group of people um, that the expedition had all the supplies they needed um, that the camps were set up and taken down. She hired workers and volunteers for the local population, wherever they went, um, and was sort of a scientific diplomat, and this was even if she didn't speak whatever the local language was. Um, so she was this, like, amazing project manager, it seems like, from these descriptions, uh, which is all kind of went kind of unspoken by the scientists going on these expeditions. Uh, and you can read more about her work and life, um in uh, Gender, Culture, and Astrophysical Fieldwork, Elizabeth Campbell and the Lick Observatory by Alex Soojun Kim Pang.
1: Yeah, and so according to Kim uh, Pang, Campbell didn't think of herself as a scientist, um, and she actually had a degree in English, but you can't say that she wasn't central to making science happen. So that same article talks a little bit about um, Wives of astronomers attached to less isolated observatories who weren't so intensely involved in the day to day scientific work. But I think, you know, we would all agree that even they had a pretty important role to play in making science happen, in like creating and sustaining these scientific communities that uh, historians of science love to go on (laughs) and on about how important these like uh, scientific communities are. It's interesting that we've had like, that's like a I think it like a distinct turn in the historiography of the history of science, where we sort of like um, move from talking about individual scientists working in isolation to like talking about scientific networks Mm -hmm. and communities. Um, And still uh, we generally don't talk about the women who were involved in these communities um, because they were just wives or whatever.
2: I might, I might totally be wrong with this, But it seems like where the work to expand those communities to women has been happening with trade books and popular history of science books with the Astronauts Wives Club and Mm -hmm. um, the Girls of Atomic City, um, really uh, expanding those communities to include not just the people that were doing the, quote, hard science, but the people that were sustaining the communities for the science to take place. And that was... Uh, mostly women. And I think this hits on something that we've kind of talked about with the other women, is this idea of care um, being a, of course, a gendered action and a gendered trait. um, But how much care has to go into making science happen, because it's coded feminine, that it's seen as in, like, opposition to science, maybe not in opposition to, but standing outside of it. Separate from it, definitely. Separate from it, yeah. And so these, when we can expand what a scientific community is, just like when we expand the definition of what science Mm -hmm. is, then we do start to see that there's more and more different types of people participating. Yeah, like, Science can't happen if there isn't someone taking care of the kids, and science can't happen if someone isn't managing household incomes, if someone isn't throwing parties that are basically big networking events that allowed scientists to raise money or, you know, to um, network and meet other collaborators, Um, you know, it was women planning those things. Um, And this is, of course, true beyond science. Um, women have always worked, and women have always supported and contributed to professional work that men get credit for.
1: Yeah, so sometimes women, you know, took part in activities that we sort of clearly think of as work. Like, you know, women—it was common for women relatives, especially wives, to be shopkeepers or accountants, or business managers, for tradesmen um, in the early modern world in the West. Um, their role gets obscured because the man owned the business or was part of a guild or um, was the one with the political power. But women are still, like, doing the day-to-day labor. Um, they're just not uh, in the sort of, like, the layer of society about which records get <laughs> yeah. made. You know, like, who owns this this business? Or um, one thing to point out about... The, the history of science, and for um, people like Herschel or um, Robert Boyle, they didn't have, like, a laboratory that they, like, commuted to every right. day. You know? They didn't these, spend an like, hour
2: in traffic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they didn't, like, stuff, like, in their, in yeah. their own homes. Obviously, they're, like s- – you know, like Robert Boyle had like however many estates and houses or whatever. But one thing that um, we'll talk about in our interview later is that like uh, Robert Boyle's sister ordered all his lab equipment for him and like set him up with a lab in his house so that he could do his whatever. (laughs) So just like not only does this stuff have to happen, even if you are someone who like, you know, gets in your car and drives to your lab every day while your wife watches your kids, like in in the early modern world for like, Gentlemanly science people, like it's happening in the home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's like no separation there at all, um, and the that that I think makes it even clearer and easier to see that the separation of this labor is gendered. It's not a spatial separation. Um, procuring things and organizing things is what women do, and yeah, thinking the thoughts <laughs> is what men do.
2: And I think that this. Um all of this kind of points to how it becomes so difficult to write women's history Mm -hmm. because they times when they just haven't been credited at all or we have to look in the acknowledgements page or the footnotes or all of these other unexpected places to find them, you know, because they're not you know, splashed on in a byline and they don't have the cover piece of a book or something like that. They're elsewhere. Um, and sometimes they're given coded names like what Robert Boyle did to his sister. So, I mean, <laughs> there's... We're going to talk about that too. Um, <laughs> but I think this, this is why doing women's history is so difficult. Um, it's so much harder to piece together a timeline, a life for people who were a footnote in someone else's life, yeah. you know? It
0: it makes me think—it's uh, This is it's almost a cliché, but I feel like getting back to the non-cliché of it is important. Uh, of course, there's the Laurel Thatcher Ulrich quote that is often misused, uh, that well-behaved women seldom make history, and that is often used as a way of propping up women who were not well-behaved, who were unusual, who went out and did the thing anyway. But the idea of that quote was that it's really hard to find kind of everyday, quote unquote, well-behaved women in the historical record because they are the yeah the footnote in someone else's story. Because the um, kinds of sources that the historical profession says are the best sources are things like government records uh, and... Mm-hmm. And others, and legal documents, and things that uh, really men are going to show up in the most often.
2: And finding finding women. So doing this type of of work of combing through correspondence and combing through um, uh, acknowledgments pages and footnotes and all of that type of stuff is one part of recovering women's lives. Another part is trying to get everyone to forget the history that was written before. (laughs) You know, you're not only like fighting the actual people of this time who worked to hide these women, you're also contending with a long historiography that has buried them even further. Mm -hmm. You're fighting historians and you're fighting the time period at the same time. Yeah, Um, And so it's like, there's 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 so much that goes into into this work and you're fighting on multiple fronts to try to get them you know some visibility
1: yeah and Layla and I were talking earlier about um we were reading um stuff for to prep for our interview and, um about the 17th century and we went through the same graduate program and we both <laughs> agreed that like i know a, a ton about 17th century science um because it's this you know it's the scientific revolution and that's like the you know one of the central periods that in you know that they teach in history of science like in graduate school and so i know like a ton about that i'm a 20th century historian and sometimes i feel like i understand more about the 17th century than i do about the 20th cuz we just spent so much time <laughs> on it um and yet um we didn't talk about any of these women. Um, We had a separate course on women. And that's another part of the problem, I think as well, is that if you're not being instructed in how to ask the right questions and how to look for women where they are, and instead you're just sort of, you know, partitioning off like women's, women's contributions to science as its own like special field of study, Uh, instead of seeing them where they are in the history that just contributes to I think like a larger inability to see women in that history like going forward and like I've written about that for the for the blog too about being at a conference and someone right giving a paper about um, a male scientist's books and all of the books were co-authored by his wife and he never mentioned her name even once. And that's like an extreme example where right. she had her name on the cover and she was a co-author. And he's still trying to tell me that uh, you know, she was probably just an editor or something. Yeah. And so it just contributes, I think, to this like if that's how you learn the history of science, um, going forward as a as a scholar or even just as a a person who's interested like that's how you're going to approach new sources and new records with this like big chunk missing and uh you know 50 of the population that like, you're just yeah, not yeah. you're not looking for and just i think maybe one thing to just highlight again just because i really can't stop thinking about it we're fighting against like yes this like huge you know centuries-long project of creating history and the history of science and like and it's so much more work to like to add women back into this but um it's not just a matter of recovering things that um, are there that people just haven't looked at like I think it's just worth underlining the fact that like Einstein threatened his wife so that she would not make her contribution public So it's not just a matter of like, oh, things got forgotten or they got lost. Like they're being actively suppressed. And so, you know, if you want to uh, idolize Einstein, you do that all you want, but just, you know, remember what he did to her. (laughs) Oh my God, (laughs) I'm never not gonna be just enraged about that. And sad, it's really sad.
2: I am about to introduce our guest for the episode, but um, we recorded this at a different time, so it's just gonna be me and um, our excellent guest, Michelle DeMeo. Michelle is a historian whose research focuses on the intellectual and cultural history of early modern science and medicine, with particular interests in medical recipes and women practitioners. And she is currently in the middle of writing an intellectual biography of Catherine Jones, Lady Ranallet, the older sister of the 17th century natural philosopher Robert Boyle. Welcome, Michelle.
3: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
2: So this is a question we like to ask um, most of our interviewees um, is how you got started with this. So how did you get started with um, studying Lady Ranallet and... um, Who was she and why is she so interesting to you?
3: Sure. Um, So I'll tell you a little bit about finding her in grad school. I did my PhD at the University of Warwick, and I was interested in early modern women's recipes and what kinds of uh, food and medicine women were doing in the household. And a lot of them start to look the same after you go through them. You recognize patterns and similar ingredients and ways of talking about bodies and health. But there was one recipe book that was really different. It had a lot of chemical and alchemical cipher throughout it. There was weird shorthand. There was references to metals and to alchemy and... There were a lot of men included throughout this and a reference to it being um, more valuable than gold, which is not something, again, kind of an alchemical reference. And I didn't know who this was. And it was so different from the other women's recipe books that I was looking at. So I brought it to my Ph.D. supervisor at the time and said, this is such a strange book. Do you know anything about this woman? And she was like, oh, my God, that's Boyle's sister. That That's your dissertation. And so that's how it started, was finding this recipe book. But then I started you know, trying to figure out who she was, meant that I had to go to archives in four different countries and pull together over 100 letters written to her and by her and just try to piece her life together. Yeah,
2: I, I can't imagine how many people working on dissertations and research projects wishes that that's how they found their topic. I mean, because that's just like, and that's almost like the historian's dream, right? Like stumbling upon something like that. And um, I know the work of piecing together a life like that is a lot of work, but. Man, that's got to be exciting and rewarding for sure.
3: It absolutely was. There's, It was definitely a lot of starts and false starts, though. Like, um, So that recipe book, while it was the start of it, the reality is I can't actually use a ton of it. Um, once I got a little bit deeper into it, it turns out it's not written in her handwriting. Um, it's There's parts that were copied from other people's recipe books. And so the further I got into that recipe book, the more I realized it was a launch pad for me to go other places, but the book itself was not. It did not turn out to be the whole dissertation. It's mostly mm-hmm. the letters.
2: Yeah. So in the the article that you've written, um, and this is such a great title, um, Such a Sister Became Such a Brother, Lady Ranallet's Influence on Robert Boyle. Um and you note in there that despite the fact that she was pretty prolific in her lifetime, aside from this recipe, this one recipe book, um, it's been difficult for historians to locate and connect her various writings. Um, so what makes doing research about her or the other women of the same time period um, different from researching men? So like a man like
1: Robert Boyle.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So women at the time were prolific and known during their lifetime, but their stories are often forgotten after they die. And that's partly because most women were not publishing at the time. If they had, it doesn't, it's so kind of backup. A lot of women used manuscripts, handwritten documents. And so you might write letters to someone. You might even copy those letters and Use a network. There was a network called the Hartlib Circle, and this was um, Samuel Hartlib was based in London over 1640s and 1650s, and he used manuscript very extensively. And people would send manuscripts to Hartlib. Hartlib might copy your manuscript and send it to somebody else, but it was a scribal network. Um, there were women that were popular in that. Lady Ronnelly was one of the most prolific scribal writers in that network, actually, that we know of today. Um, not just as a woman, but she was in the top 10 uh, connections over, wow. from over 700 people that were writing in that network. So we know that she was well known. Um, she was older than Robert Boyle. So when he moves to London, she has the connections and he's, she's the one that is setting him up with some of the people who would later become part of his intellectual network. Everyone knew her. And I think that that quote, such a sister became such a brother, that's a contemporary quote from their funeral sermon. They had a joint funeral sermon. They died one week apart from each other. And that was, uh, Bishop Gilbert Burnett says that about him, that he wouldn't basically be what he was today without his sister helping him do that. Um, One thing I'll say is um, so, partly the scribal network is one of the reasons that women are not around today. They weren't publishing, so you can't go to the library and check the book out the way you can with Robert Boyle, who wrote very prolifically and did publish a lot of stuff. But also when Boyle died, he made provisions for his archive. So he has a will and testament, he has literary executors to his will, and he was very conscious about the fact that he was leaving a legacy behind. So he has color-coded ribbons tied up, and he has these inventories (laughs) written up saying, you can find these documents with the blue ribbon in this room, and you can find this chest over here for this. And he's very conscious about the legacy he's leaving. A woman wouldn't have done that. It would have damaged their modesty you know, essentially. And so um, some women were published posthumously by other people who inherited their works. But generally speaking, women would not have thought to do that or have done that.
2: Mm -hmm. And there was something I believe in the article where he did not reference her by name, in one of his
3: works. So in none of his works. Yeah, absolutely. And so that is absolutely right. Um, She wouldn't, she didn't publish. And then those who mentioned her in their publications, like Robert Boyle, did not use her name. So he uses uh, the pseudonym Sophronia, which is about, you know, wisdom and knowledge, which is a very nice uh, pseudonym, but it's not, obviously it's not her name. And scholars today have had to work backwards to try to find references to her in his works and others. There's other references to um, like a woman we all know. <laughs> so we, we know today that that's her, but it's really thanks to the work of hundreds of years of scholars piecing together references and being able to talk about who she is today. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and it seems like she had a pretty big influence on Robert Boyle. Um, and not just on his, uh, political and moral outlook, but, um, also just kind of on him as a person. Um, you mentioned that he, or that she, um, kind of set up his laboratory for him to make sure that he had everything he needed when he moved into her house. Um, so can you talk a little bit about their relationship?
3: Sure. So she's, like I said, 12 years older than him and their mother dies when he's only three years old. Um, so she's 15 and she actually had a failed marriage her first marriage set up she was only nine years old when she left the house to be contracted to marry to a family that then falls apart but she has by this time developed um, some head of the household responsibilities and she's been already nurtured on how to be a matriarch so when she moves back to the house after this failed marriage and she's 15 years old and her mother dies and she has this this younger siblings um the the youngest uh, at the time being uh, Robert Boyle and they do have a, there's another little girl that ends up dying um, beforehand so Boyle does become the youngest um, he's and he's he looks up to his mother he doesn't have a mother figure at this time and scholars definitely agree that this is the start of her kind of being a surrogate mother for him but it carries on throughout his life uh, when he does go. He learns a little bit of French and Latin and does a tour of the continent. And when he comes back to London, he's looking for a network and a family. And he looks up his older sister, Lady Ronnelly, and she's, she's in London at this time. Um, and this is the start. He's actually thinking about joining the army. And she tells him, don't do that. You know This is a waste of your skills. You, know, you should be of the mind. And he talks her out of it, or she talks him out of it. And that's something that later when he's writing a biography of himself, he says is one of the formative moments in his life, that she was able to introduce him to some of the political and intellectual figures who would later become very important to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he does, he he moves, she helps him set up his first laboratory, which is in Stallbridge at one of the family estates. Um, But over this time, he's not in London. She's the one who's in London. Um, He's actually quite far removed in uh, southwest England at the family estate. So she's connecting him all through this time. Uh, He moves to Oxford. She helps him by – she goes over to the apothecary's house and sleeps in all the rooms to make sure which one's the best for her younger brother and make sure he has a laboratory there. So she really, you know, is there. And then when she eventually convinces him to move to London – Um, he moves in with her. And she, again, like you mentioned, makes sure he has the laboratory on that house as well. Um, And that's kind of when we, you know, we're definitely sure that they must have continued to work together. They lived together for the last 23 years of their lives, but because they're not writing to each other anymore, there's less evidence at this point.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, Especially like what you said at the beginning, how a lot of your piecing together of things for her has been letters. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about the work that they did together. What, what, what did some of their collaborations look like? And then we can maybe talk a little bit about what her work alone looked like.
3: Um, So again, it's difficult to say exactly what all the collaborations looked like. We know that they had similar interests in in medicine, um, specifically. And at this time, there's a push to try to use medicine as one of the useful forms of natural philosophy at the time, because um, some of the new experimental science is under attack by some people. And medicine is an easy way to say, look, this new experimental philosophy that's out there is actually helping people. So we know that she's reading some of his works on this, um, and she's editing some of his works and helping him, uh, pushing them into publication. We also know that, um, they work together. There's a few recipes. There's one, um, there's like spirit of heart's horn and ends veneris. These are various, um, chemical medicines that they were producing. And we know from his books that he says that he's made them and then he'll make a reference to his sister also making them. So the extent of their collaboration is not totally clear, but we know that they're doing that together. Um, But perhaps one of the biggest forms of collaboration that survives is uh, her treatment of the rickets Boyle mentions several times that she has this uh, Kolkathar flowers recipe, um, which again is similar to this Enzvenaris one that he mentions somewhere else. Um, But this is, uh, he says multiple times that she's treated hundreds of children of the disease and fixed them. And the way that he writes about it, he says stuff like prepared by by me and given out by her so she's probably the one that's distributing the medication and we do know that there's different dosages based on what the patient how sick the patient is and the patient's weight so dosing that medication and distributing it is also um you know she was the one that was actually giving patient care
2: what was some of the work that she was doing on her own
3: um, so some of it we like. It's there's some more extensive recipes um, in this book as well, um, in, in some of the other books. So we, we definitely know that whether she's doing it with him or on her own, she's definitely interested in medical recipes of various kinds. Um, but also, like I mentioned, this Heartlib Circle group. So they're interested in trying to better the world, and it's through politics, through education. Uh, social reform more generally and she's very politically active throughout her life and she writes a few discourses there's one discourse concerning the plague where she's really upset that um, people who are dissenting against the mainstream religion at the time um, are being trapped a lot of like the non dissenting religions and they're getting trapped and because the plague is spreading uh, the plague is spreading and killing all of these people. And she's saying they're dying just for following their conscience. This is ridiculous. And so she calls, it, calls these prisons murdering holes. And so she does a lot of um, political activity as well that Boyle's less interested in. Um, Boyle, maybe he's not less interested, but he's much more careful than she is. Um, and there's another piece that comes out at the end of her, the end of Boyle's life, that, which is an attack on mainstream medicine, that I'm pretty sure has Ronalee's mark on it. And he never publishes it. But I've been kind of, for my book, I've been tracing some of the language that's in there and tracing it back to Ronalee, And I think that she's actually probably behind some of that as well.
2: So we talked about this um, a little bit, but I think this is something that is kind of a larger problem with other women. And in this episode, we talked about um, Carolyn Herschel and um, Maleva Einstein, and how it's very difficult to um, kind of tease apart the obscured influence of the wives or sisters or helpers or whatever they're called for that in, you know, from the work of the famous men, Um, and to actually, like, quantify that influence in a way that we can say that this woman mattered. What has doing that work with Ronaleigh and Boyle, Robert Boyle, been like for you?
3: It's, I think it's, it's been very powerful. I would say that I'm getting some good reception of it too. I mean, people have known forever, pretty much that Ronaleigh was a big influence on Boyle, but what's been so hard is like you said, to quantify it and say, what did she actually do? Like you have all these vague references to people saying such a sister became such a brother, but you're like, well, how, but what did she actually do? So it's extremely time consuming. Um, and it also, I think sometimes one of the challenges for me as a historian is that what I find doesn't look like feminist today. Like, it doesn't look like the kind of thing that feminists want to rally around and say, oh, this is great. You know, this is, you know, she's really breaking down doors and she's really doing this. Like, the fact is she wasn't. She she found a way to live as a woman in the 17th century by being an intellectual woman without attracting criticism. And I think that was a very you know, something she carefully navigated. And that's what makes it difficult for us to locate her influence today. But it's also what made her so successful at being a female intellectual in the 17th century.
2: Oftentimes, I find the more feminist type of statements that I see in women's history is how they subverted norms within the roles that they had. That it wasn't always, you know, like burning bras and (laughs) that type of thing. Sometimes it was operating and navigating the conventions of the time and subverting them in all of the little nuanced ways that they could find.
3: I completely agree. And I think that we're... like, I'm really happy we're getting there. I just remember, you know, in undergrad so long ago, <laughs> but I remember like the, the women that we talk about were often women that we could relate to. And even when I teach this stuff today, students love stories about Margaret Cavendish or other early modern women who are all, which are great stories. But, um, it, you know, there are so many of these women who, like you said, they're not burning bras, they're not knocking the doors down, but they have found ways to, manipulate these worlds that they live in. And I think that I think the more we learn about that, the more we're going to find women like you're talking about in this show today. And I think that's an absolutely essential part of history.
2: Well, that's all the questions that we have for you. Thank you for for being on the
3: show. Thank you so much to Lady Science. You guys are great. All right, that's
2: it. If you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com/donate and until next time, you can find us on Facebook at @ladiesciencemag and on Twitter and Instagram at @ladyxscience.